If you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Job. You might have guessed that that's where we'd be based on the songs and the readings and the prayers already today. And if you were here last week, you didn't have to guess. Uh, For our guests with us today, I'm so glad that you're here. Trust that you've already been blessed as we've been worshiping the Lord together. Uh, We're in the second week of a series in the Old Testament book of Job. Last week was the overview, and this week we'll be looking at chapters 1 and 2 as we consider overall with this book of Job's talking to and about God. We want to find wisdom from the book of Job. And today we're talking about wisdom for suffering, wisdom for when we face loss. That kind of central question that Job asks in Job chapter 28 and verse 12 was this that we looked at last week and it'll be up on the screen. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? That question is never so stark as when we face suffering and loss. In these moments, when it's hard, where shall wisdom be found? How do we know what to think? How do we know how to act? How do we know what we should do? How do we know how to think about who God is and what he is doing in the world? And so the title of the sermon for this week is When Life Doesn't Make Sense. When life doesn't make sense. And before we jump into what I want to say about the text, let's look at the text together. I'll read that aloud and then we'll pray. Then we'll continue thinking together about finding wisdom from the book of Job. So this is the book of Job, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, 
All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, A great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell down on the ground. And worshipped. And he said... Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day. When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. 
Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. This is the word of the Lord. Let's thank him for it. Oh God, we look to you now and we need you. We need to know you in truth. We need to worship you in truth. We need to see you high and lifted up, but not so high that you can't reach down to care for us. And so we thank you that in Jesus you have come down to care for us. And so would you help us as we reflect together this morning on this story of deep, deep loss. Would you help us to see what you want us to see? Would you help us to feel what you want us to feel? To believe what you want us to believe so that we can give you the worship that you are due with our lips and with our lives. Would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen. The sermon that's over these first two chapters of Job is going to emphasize his character, looking at Job's integrity. See, Satan's accusation, the, the heavenly counsel that led to his trials, his unimaginable loss, and his really impressive initial response. Not the initial response that we would probably give. And then we're going to seek to answer some key questions that emerge from this text. When life doesn't make sense, will we bless God? Will we curse him? When we lose everything, will God himself be enough? This is kind of the central question here in these first two chapters. Will Job love God for God or just for his gifts, right? Does Job love God, worship God, fear God for nothing? Look at all that he has. But we know that it's Satan who does it, right? But is Satan's power, even though he's a real enemy, is it limited in any way? What role does God play in the suffering that we experience in this life? And the goal as we look through this story together to consider these questions is to lead us to express trust in the Lord, hope in the Lord, even when nothing makes sense. And so the big idea this morning is this. God is worthy of our trust and worship, even when nothing makes sense. God is worthy of our trust and worship, even when nothing makes sense. The first five verses, and it's also mentioned at several other places as God challenges Job, uh, challenges Satan and says, have you considered my servant Job? 
These first five verses introduce us to Job's integrity. And you may have noticed that through the reading, that that was a theme throughout, that even at the end of chapter two, when now he has boils all over his body and he's in absolute agony, what does his wife say? The bad advice that Ralph likes to mention. Do you still hold fast your integrity? And he, picking up on the wisdom theme of the book, says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Job does hold fast his integrity. Just look back at the first few verses of chapter 1. How is he described? He's blameless, upright, one who feared God, turned away from evil. And when his children would be getting together to celebrate their birthdays and they'd be all together, he's praying for them, making sacrifices for them, rising early in the morning, offering burnt offerings. Why? Verse 5, he says, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in our hearts. And then the narrator adds, thus Job did continually. This is what he did all the time. It was his regular practice. It was his consistent testimony, his consistent way of life. Job is painted here by the narrator as an absolute man of integrity. And it's not just the narrator's opinion. Yahweh, the Lord, it's his opinion too, right? When Satan comes before him and God says, you know, where have you been? I've been up and down, around. And it's God who says, have you considered my servant Job? And how does he describe him? The same way the narrator does. Blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil. And then in chapter 2, after the unimaginable loss of chapter 1, God describes Job exactly the same way. Did you pick up on that as we were reading through? It's like, wait, I feel like we've heard these words before. God has issued this kind of challenge before, and it's because he had. He did. So we're introduced to Job's integrity. Now, as we work through the book, we'll see all sorts of accusations against Job, and certainly your children must have been bad, you must have been bad. That's the only reason that these bad things could have happened to you. And sometimes we can get the same way. What have I done to deserve this? When we begin to face trials, we face difficulties, some of us, different ones have kind of different directions that we go, but some of us go pretty quickly to like, oh yeah, I didn't read my Bible the last three days. No wonder my day is going poorly. And sometimes we can think of it the other way, right? If I, if I read my Bible, then I'll be blessed. Blessed looks like things going well, right? The way, and well is the way that I think that they should right? Everyone's looking at me like I'm the only person in the room who ever does that. <laughs> and whether you're attaching it to your Bible reading or having devotions or whether you know that, that sin that really no one else knows about and you fell and you, you did that again and it's like, well, of course I can't be blessed the rest of this day, probably the week, maybe even a month, until I can get myself back and better and then I feel like I can bring myself before the Lord again. Do you ever get that way? We're going to sneak way ahead here. The good news of the gospel is that even though there is none like Job 
And in this room, I would venture to guess there is none like Job in our integrity. There's one who's even better than Job. And it's his integrity on which we stand. It's his righteousness on which we stand and in which we hope. Because Jesus was absolutely perfect in his life on this earth. He lived the way that Job lived regularly, but not completely, as we'll see. Job acknowledges that he himself is a sinner as well. It doesn't change how true the story is, but we recognize when we see these words, like, that's, that's not me. And so before we even get too far in, there's good news for those who fail, because that's us. And it's not about reading our Bible one more time or for one more hour, and you're like, hour, are you kidding me? Or that we can stop doing that thing. The explosive anger that rules our life. I haven't done that for like a week. God's, God's, I'm probably going to get a raise at work because of that. Right? We still work like we have some currency that would make it where God could somehow be in our debt. And our theology is way better than that. We know it. But then day by day, how quickly do we go there? We cannot rest in our own integrity. We rest in the righteousness and blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And having him, we strive to live with integrity. This isn't like, look, how, look what Job is like. We can never be like that. Whoo, good thing Jesus. I'll just go on in my sin. There's nothing in Job that leads us that way. (laughs) There's nothing anywhere in the Bible that leads us that way. So while we want to say like, yeah, we're probably not like that. And so we don't want to start with, oh no, I'll never live up to it. And boy, if he got that, what do I deserve? It's like, yeah, we can start there and then go to Jesus took what we deserve on the cross. (laughs) Isn't that good news? And then he's given us his spirit and hope in him to live in holiness and with integrity while we wait for him to come again. And even then we'll stumble and fall. But we're his. We belong to him. He loves us. He will carry us all the way home. Not our integrity, his So Job was living as a man with integrity. But then in the next few verses there, we see Satan's accusation. Verse 6 tells us there was a day, and you've probably noticed that was kind of a theme too. There's a day, and then this happened. When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And we're used to that as a name for a personal being, and I think that's true here, but that name is a word that means accuser. And actually, here in the text, it's always with the proper noun, and you're like, what are we doing? I'm in grammar class. It just means every time you see the word Satan here, it actually says, the Satan. And it means that. 
Because Satan means accuser. So it's not just like, oh, the devil, yeah, the bad guy, the guy who's against God. We know who he is. That's true. But there's a focus on what he does. Satan is here as the accuser. So the sons of God are coming before him, and here's the accuser too. He shows up. And the Lord asks him a question. Satan answers back, and then the Lord actually issues the challenge that leads to Satan's accusation. Have you considered my servant Job? Then in verse 9, Satan answers the Lord. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him? This is where if you're a newer Christian, you've heard people praying for like a hedge of protection. This is the verse. Okay? And that's Satan's point. He's like, you set a hedge that no one can get through. Like, I can't get at him. Everything goes fine for him. You've set a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. So Satan's not just a guy, he's an accuser. Who says, even the ones that the Lord says, look how well they're doing. He says, nah, uh, uh, uh. And so as we consider Satan and his accusation, he's a real enemy. And he's still active today. We have a real enemy who in the New Testament is called the accuser of the brothers. Our accuser. We have an enemy who is our accuser too. Do you ever feel him accusing you? Saying, uh-huh, you did that. Like the lies we tell ourselves are sometimes Satan telling us those lies. He's a real enemy. And as we saw in what he could do in this text, he's a powerful enemy. And the Lord says, Behold, all that Job has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Satan's like, all right, good, we're in good shape. And through different means, he gets his will done. He's a powerful enemy. But as is also clear in this text, he is a limited enemy enemy. As powerful as Satan is, this text clearly presents him as being on a leash. We do not live in a dualistic world where there's a God who's pretty powerful and there's an equal power, Satan, and they battle it out and get the upper hand and maybe someone will win one day. It's not like that. Satan is a creature. Satan lives in God's world. And he, for all his rogue directions that he goes, ultimately is under God's authority. He is a limited enemy. So for that question, is Satan's power to harm us limited in any way? Yes, it is. It is limited by the power of God. And we see that in verse 12. In chapter 1, 
when the Lord says, go ahead, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him did not stretch out your hand. And so he can't. And then he comes back and they talk again in chapter 2. And the Lord says, okay, you can, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. He says, okay. And he goes right up to the limits of what God will allow. But he cannot push past those limits, even if he would desire to have us. Like he desired to have Peter. And Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. Didn't mean that Peter wouldn't struggle. Didn't even mean that Peter wouldn't fall mightily. He did. That's what Jesus told Peter shortly before Peter denied him. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. And we might read what happens next and go like, well, his faith failed, right? I mean, he had the chance to say, yeah, I know him. That's all he had to do. How hard would that have been? It's like apparently very hard. And we probably would have done the same thing. That guy? I don't don't know. I'm just... That's what Peter does, and it seems like his faith failed. But did Peter end up continuing in his faith? Did the Lord restore him and establish him and call him to feed his sheep, to feed his lambs, to feed his sheep? And who's the human instrument of the Spirit's power on Pentecost when thousands of people come to Christ? The guy who less than two months before was like, I don't know that guy. Satan is on a leash. Even when it looks like he's won, he can't finally win. Because he is a losing enemy. He loses this contest, right? He loses in chapter one. And he's like, he will definitely curse you to your face if you take all his stuff. Because he has it so easy. Of course he worships you. And God's like, no. Go ahead. And he goes ahead. And what does Job do? Shocking. He falls down and worships. And Satan's like, well, that was pretty good, I guess. But if you make make him bleed, then he'll curse you. And what does Job do again? Even when he's encouraged to curse by someone he should expect to support him, You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we not receive good from the Lord and not also evil or disaster? We've had good things. We can experience bad things too. And we can expect both of those things from God's hand. As we consider the substance of the accusation, having thought about Satan, he's real, he's powerful, but he's limited and he's a loser. What was the substance? And Job has everything he wants. His life is going fine. And maybe none of us are the greatest person on the East Coast. Right? None of us are the richest. And yet so many of us have so much. And as much as we might worry about some things, there really is not much to worry about in our day-to-day lives. 
We might consider the expense of like, well, if we all go out and how many of there are us in our family now? How much will that cost? We might think about it, and yet we're still able to do it. For most, it's like, yes, we can pay the bills. We are not worried about whether we're going to eat this week or month or not. And we're tempted to trust in what we have. Like it can't disappear in a moment. And this is what Satan's really going after. This is what he's saying. It's like, why does Job worship you? You give him everything he wants and more. Of course he's going to follow you. And so one of the questions for us is if Satan's bringing those kinds of accusations about us. It's like, well, look at that. They, they all have warm clothes on cold days. Their heat's on. They have food. They can go to church and gather with other people. And like, I mean, why wouldn't they? And so that's the question for us. Will we worship God because he's God, because he's the creator and because he's overall and because he has given his own son for us. When life doesn't make sense, when it's not going the way we think it should, do we worship God? And none of us have experienced what Job experienced here in breathless moment after breathless moment, right? Each, each one coming up and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you and while he was still speaking, the next one comes and it gets worse and worse and worse, when we lose everything else, will God himself be enough? And the answer here was yes for Job. Job will love God for God, not for his gifts. And so there's a challenge for us in this text. Will we love God for God? How easily are we knocked off course? When things don't go our way, it's like, okay, I've got to figure it out. I'm going to do this without even a, a thought toward God because this is just a regular thing. Like if, if something this big happened, surely I would turn to the Lord. But in all these little things, I got it. You know how I know people think that way? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> right? We think about that with, with little illnesses. That's how I tend to be. So just wait it out. It'll get better. Big ones, we got to pray, right? But little ones is like, just, I mean, a few days. I know how this works. Part of what Job is telling us, we don't really know how it works. We don't know what God is doing. We don't know what Satan's trying to do, but we don't know what God is doing. And sometimes it's those little things that turn into really big things all of a sudden, and we had no idea. And we're not ready because we're not doing it with the Lord. We're not doing it like the Lord is the one who's in charge, like the Lord is the one who has us, and the Lord is the one who will take care of us. But we don't only see Satan's accusation along with Job's integrity. 
and hear that question for our own hearts. We're confronted with God's sovereign freedom. God's sovereign freedom. The Lord here is clearly in charge, right? And it's even his idea. And that's what's kind of hard for us when we think about suffering. So we can go like, Satan, you know, he did the bad stuff and God does the good stuff. But the text clearly places the Lord in charge of Job's suffering. And not only in charge of Job's suffering, he's the one who initiated the conversation about Job. Satan's there just kind of generically being bad. Because that's who he is and what he does, right? He doesn't come with any specific application, uh, accusations. I've just been going around. And it's the Lord who says, have you considered now, obviously, he has considered Job, right? Because he's got a ready answer. Like, well, of course, that guy worships you. Maybe Satan thought he didn't even have a chance with Job. And God opens the crack, the opportunity. God's sovereign freedom is what's highlighted not only here in the first two chapters, but we'll be coming back to it again and again as we work through the book of Job together. He is over all, and he's to be valued above all. And this is especially difficult when we're facing suffering, right? And especially suffering that keeps going. How can this be part of God's good plan for my life, right? Have you been told that? We've talked about it here before. You know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And the thing is, that's true. But his wonderful plan often looks very different from your wonderful plan. It's not God loves you and will fulfill your wonderful plan for your life. He does love you. He does have a plan for your life. And his plan for your life, if you are in Christ, includes being conformed to the image of his son. That's what's good. And when we see him again, when we see him face to face, we will be completely conformed to the image of his son. God does indeed have a wonderful plan for your life. But it, for all of us at some point, will look like pain and suffering and loss and death. But on the other side, life eternal. And so God is to be valued above all. And God is not to be judged according to our understanding. Even our understanding that we think we have from, of him from his word. That's part of what the friends will get wrong. It's like, I know this is true about God. And generically it is. We don't want to be like Job's wife, who speaks as one of the foolish women speaks. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. And may we posture and prepare our hearts to say, Blessed be the name 
of the Lord. So as we consider all these, we consider trusting God. That's ultimately where we want to land. Now, Job will have his words to say, and we'll talk about those as we move through the series. But as we see these two chapters and see this unimaginable loss and see Job maintain his integrity, by God's grace, trusting in Christ, we want to be a people who trust God even when nothing makes sense. And we want to be steadfast in it. The text we looked at last week, James 5.11, and it'll be up on the screen. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. And he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. We've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. When we remember God's sovereign control over all things and his freedom to give and take away, we also remember that God cares for us. Remember his purpose. He is compassionate and merciful. So whatever his purposes are in our suffering, we must hold on to this. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. And we have even more reason than Job to trust God, right? Because Jesus had, has entered our suffering. He's not only been with us in our suffering, he has suffered in our place, taking the suffering that we deserve. And so we can have confidence, not in our own integrity or blamelessness, but in Christ and in his work for us. We, along with Job, can say, I know that my Redeemer lives. We can say that in my flesh I will see God. We know that we will be vindicated in the end, not because of our integrity, but of Christ's perfect sacrifice in our place. And even now we have the promise of his Holy Spirit with us. Part of what Job will lament is God's seeming absence. That's what's coming in the chapters ahead. But we have the promise of God's very own presence with us by his spirit. And as we face weakness, we're aware that this is the way it will be until Jesus returns. Sometimes we can think, well, we're in the new covenant age, we're in the age of the spirit, we're in the age of miracles, we're in the age of healing, and so that will always happen. Now those things can happen. And we pray for them. And sometimes God blesses us with them. But if anybody was righteous enough to get their miracle and get their healing, it was the Apostle Paul, right? And he speaks in 2 Corinthians 12 of what he calls a thorn in the flesh, sent from a messenger of Satan to torment me. And he prays to the Lord three times to have it taken away. And maybe some of us are in the middle of praying, take it away. 
this thing that seems to be actually holding me back from good things that I want to do for you, Lord. This seems to line up with your plans. When we find ourselves there praying, the Lord may heal and the Lord may say what he said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That's the opposite of how we tend to think, right? Power is made perfect when I feel good, when I feel strong, when I am ready, when I feel prepared, when I'm going to own it. But whose power would be seen then? Whose glory would I be tempted to live for then? Says my power is made perfect in weakness. And what does Paul then say? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. More than sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys, none of us would have anywhere to keep them anyway. We need the power of Christ to rest on us. And sometimes the way the power of Christ rests on us is in our weakness. We could even say oftentimes, most times, when the power of Christ rests on us, it is in our weakness. Suffering is still mysterious to us. We don't get it and we wish it would never have to happen. But it's not mysterious to God. And he does have a plan for you. And it involves you being like Christ. It involves you living every day for his glory. And it involves you being with him, face to face, seeing him, serving him, worshiping him with everyone else who belongs to him forever. God is worthy of our trust and worship even when nothing makes sense. And most likely, we'll never know all God's purposes for what happens in our lives and the lives of our loved ones. But we know that whatever comes, God is in control, and God is compassionate and merciful. God is good. We can trust his heart. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that you are overall and that you care about us, that you are with us, that you are for us. And would you help us in whatever we face, whatever loss we're experiencing even now, that we would look to you and we would find your presence and your peace enough for us. And out of the confidence that we have in who you are and what you have done for us in Christ, let us gladly boast of our weaknesses so that the power of Christ would rest on us. Would you give us grace as we go through difficulty, sorrow, and loss to give you the glory that you are due? Would you help us? Oh, we need your help. Would you be with us according to your promise? And would we be with you forever, according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.